our journey through the uh, book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, the Roman church, which was made up of primarily house churches uh, and um, no church, local, big cathedral type place that could be marked as, uh, uh, like we said before, you know, Hope Church or any kind of First Baptist, First Presbyterian, First anything. It was uh, uh, these house churches that this letter was distributed to, and um, it was written uh, in a lull of a time, it seems, when at the end of Paul's third uh, missionary journey and uh, missionary tour, and he finds himself in Corinth, uh, writing this this letter uh, to a church that he wants to, and we're going to read about that a little bit today. We'll hear his heart uh, for these people that he's uh, he must have met some of them. Uh, certainly has a long list in chapter sixteen of people that he knows, uh, gives warm welcome to, uh, exchange uh, 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 these conversations with them, greetings. But yet he's never been there. He didn't start it. Uh, if we will look today in something in Acts, we'll see that at the beginning, at the day of Pentecost, it says those visiting from Rome. So it may very well be that those who were visiting at Rome were the ones that went back and the Lord used to, to plant a church and to start a church there. And, and we see that, that Paul has a, a desire for Spain. He has a desire to, to, go, toward, to go to Spain and it may, uh, the first stop is Jerusalem because he, as we read the book and as you go through it, we'll see that he, he has this gift, this collection of money that is uh, for the suffering church in Jerusalem. As we remember, we went through a long time now ago, but you remember in Second Corinthians where uh, Paul was taking up this collection and that's what we see about, about the, the, the giver and how much we give and, you know, uh, how much we sow and and um, the generous heart that we, we give uh, to the gospel and to the church and to the Lord's work. Remember, in that letter, they were accusing Paul of collecting this money and not trusting him and saying, we got to be careful. We don't know what he's going to do with this. He's coming under the guise of collecting this, but we really can't trust him. Uh, we really, this is a guy we got to, you know, sowing kind of uh, this uh, seeds of discourse so that Paul's work would be uh, undermined, and the work of, of certainly the evil one, uh, Satan himself, trying to uh, uh, take away the, the, the work of what Paul was doing there, that he had started that church and was very much a part of them and loved them, and had made, this was actually probably his, his fourth letter uh, to them, um, and, uh, but we have it as Second Corinthians. So we see all this happening, as I mentioned last week, but there's that collection. So he wants to go to Jerusalem to drop this off. And then he wants to go to Rome. And from Rome, it's, it, the belief is, is that he wants to uh, go from this church as a sending church for him to, to be a missionary and go on a missionary journey to Spain. So he's looking for this base uh, that many missionaries do have and look for a sending church, church that they can call home, a church that can be the place of, of recognizing their gifts, their call, and being sending, sending them off. And, and um, so that may be where, uh, you know, why uh, Paul wants to, uh, one of the reasons why he wants to, but he genuinely wants to meet these folks, and then we're going to see that again today, why he wants to do that. And it was written some time in around 58, if I had not said that yet. And Paul doesn't, didn't write this letter if you read the ends of many of his letters, he realizes that you know maybe Paul had this eye issue, so he didn't write very well. And you can say I, you can see in big letters how I write. And in this letter, it's Tertius. He, he actually is his secretary, or administrative assistant, or technically it's called amanuensis. Uh, that's what they're called. They you know someone who is actually doing Paul is dictating, and, and Tertius is actually writing the letter. So. Um, uh, we also see that uh, there is uh, uh, the reason why Paul writes this letter is because evidently there is a uh, an issue going on, some sort of 
tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, we see the way the letter is broken up and the way that there are, uh, there's directly addressing the Gentiles and directly ad- addressing the, the, the Jews. Uh, there are uh, between 60 and 70 citations from the Old Testament and allusions to. So there's over 70-some uh, references back to the Old Testament, which the Gentiles wouldn't have a clue. Uh, so that's why it's directed to them. And what Paul does, as we, we looked last week, is that the letter is broken up, and, and we're going to, the focus of our attention for this year and my series of messages will, will take us probably to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. And we see that uh, there's, a clean, there's a clean break uh, all the way, this, this teaching of doctrine, this teaching of, of uh, the tenets of the faith, this uh, argument for the gospel. And uh, Paul, again, teaching people the basics about what the gospel is. Because when he goes, he wants them to realize that I just want, you know, this is what, this is what I'm going to be talking about, the gospel, concerning Jesus, the Son of God. And we see that, as we mentioned last week, that chapter 11, that beautiful verse about all oh, the depths, the riches, this beautiful uh, summary of, of all of chapter 1 through 11, which is all about, uh, as I mentioned, the Bible grammar, as I talked about last week, and I said we've talked about this, and my ministry here, and Nate's been talking about it too, is Bible grammar is the indicatives, those things that are, are truth, and this is how, what things are, and this is what things that exist. This is who you are. This is who Jesus is. This is what the gospel is about. And then it says in chapter 12, this clean break is now, as I said, there's only a handful of imperatives or commands to do anything in verses, chapters 1 through 11. But in chapter 12, there's over almost, there's almost 30 imperatives given in those, uh, just those few chapters at the end. So he is telling us, this is, what, this is what the gospel is. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, chapter 12, in view of these blessings, these riches, the grace that God has given to us, he says, therefore, do this as a consequence of your understanding and as a result and as your motivation. Because you can never tell people to do anything because it becomes moralism. And that's where many people, many churches are. Do this. I want you to do this. God says to do this. And so we go home with a list, and we've got a whole list of things to do, and we don't know why. Why? Because, of, as Paul writes in chapter you know, 1 through 11, and he does it in other letters as well, that there's a purpose and a reason. Before I tell you to do anything, I want to tell you what it is. I want to tell you why. So that's what we're looking at um, here in, uh, in Romans. The very, we're going to work our way up as long as it takes. Um, and if the Lord doesn't return, we'll... Uh, We'll be here to, to chapters 1 through 11, and certainly uh, the focus of uh, up, to chapter, uh, up to chapter 9, uh, actually the end of chapter 8, that's where we're going to be the focus for the next couple years. Uh, so let me turn and read to you now uh, the, this portion of Paul's letter. I'm going to reread verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1. And let me pray before I read. Dear God, our Father, our heavenly Creator, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you uh, for, again, giving us this word. Uh, Thank you for giving us uh, a pattern of thinking. Thank you for giving us uh, this this gospel that is uh, unlike any other on earth. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have given us ears to hear it. Uh, We pray that you'll give us eyes to see. We pray that you'll give us hearts that want to receive so that we will love you more and serve you more and, and, and love you better and serve you better. Not that our service depends upon our love from you or our salvation, but because, Lord, the more we love, the more we want to serve and the more deeper our, our, our passion for who you are and what you have done for us is, is uh, really a, a direct consequence of the gospel in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that as we hear these words this morning, 
in days ahead that you will uh, bless us, uh, bless us with your work through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve in and with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may mutually be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the rent of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the fool. Just, I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And my God bless the reading of this portion of God's word today. We looked at last week and kind of went through this uh, Paul's addressing himself as a servant, and he does that to just make sh- let us everybody know that he is like us, but yet he, he makes sure that he again uh, designates himself and this calling that he is a, an ambassador, a delegate sent by Christ and called directly by Christ and one who is abnormally born, and one who has seen Jesus and been called directly by Jesus to be an apostle with a capital A, so to speak. So there are no more capital A apostles anywhere, but there are, as, as in, a, uh, in another way, apostles like us, ones who are sent out into the world, sent from Hope Church, sent to our work, sent to our family, sent to our neighborhoods, To be ambassadors for Christ, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. And then he says that he is also uh, set apart for the gospel, that he has been sanctified, that he, in a sense, the word separated. And all these are passive. These are things that God has done for him. He has not, he has not, uh, um, been, he's a, says a servant, the word here is a slave, and we looked at last week the verses where Paul talks about being bought with a price. And bought, bought meaning that is not he buys himself, but someone bought him. And he hasn't called himself, but someone else has called him. And he has not been set apart by himself as Pharisees used to be, as, and Paul was one of the Pharisees of all Pharisees. They would set themselves apart. He is saying, I've been set apart by God for the gospel of God, for a particular cause and calling in this life. And he says in chapter in verse 2, not, I want you to realize that this gospel that of God is not something that's new. And this isn't plan B. The law didn't work, so we're going to have to do something new. Because these people are tough. It's not that it is. This is God's intent from the very beginning, from Genesis all the way through all Revelation to the book of Revelation. Is that this this has been promised from Genesis to Malachi. This has been promised beforehand through the prophets as Jesus unfolded to the disciples and talked about that this has been 
This has been talked about in the law and the prophets and the Psalms and all the Old Testament. Everything points to me. And so Paul is writing and saying, it's, it's been around. It's not new. I've learned it and you can learn it. Jews, you've, you've come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And this gospel is concerning his son, who was descended from David. We see that we, we've uh, uh, looked at different passages talking you know, from the Old Testament that, that this was a promised lineage through the very bloodline of David. David's own son was going to be on the throne, and not a throne that's temporary, but a throne and a kingdom that is forever. So people don't live forever, so it has to be pointing about Jesus. And was declared to be, in verse 4, the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's where we, we, we ended last week but for me i want to go back and look at this verse again because it really to me and to others to me is is important a verse four to understand what's happened here because it then sets the stage for understanding why paul does anything that he does or why he prays the way he prays or why he desires to be an evangelist or why he wants to be sent as a missionary or why he has said yes at all to this which is applicable to us why would we pray why would we want to serve christ why would we want to evangelize and we should why should we pray for missionaries or desire to be sent by god to some place home work wherever neighborhood to be used by god to be the light in this world of darkness why do we do this and because of, of, of verse four and what is again he was declared it is he was defined he was appointed he was fixed meaning that that it wasn't that jesus wasn't the son of god before because if you turn with me to John's Gospel, the very prologue of John Go John's Gospel tells us this. So keep your hand in Romans, and we'll go to John's Gospel, and it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning was with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing, not nothing at all, anything was made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in darkness and the darkness not overcome it and so we see that jesus is the very son of god the very second person of the trinity jesus has existed was with god was in fellowship with god was near god with the father and son and holy spirit together so jesus was not not existed he always has existed he's always been god he's always been the son of god but as we looked at last week <clears throat> he explains and the bible tells us that that jesus is now the christ and lord as we're going to look at in the book of acts this is where he is declared this because he is not only just the messiah he is god himself he is not just a man, but he is the God-man. He is not God, a God and a man, but he is the God-man, which is mysteriously uh, brought to us in the Bible and something very hard to us to get our hands wrapped around, but the Bible teaches us that Jesus is very God of very God and very man of very man. And so we, we realize that when Jesus came... He came, as Philippians tells us, he took the form, became obedient, nothing that he, that he was, his deity, to something that someone could take away from him, that he could lose it, that nobody could steal it from him. He set aside, not giving up, he just set aside the prerogatives of being the second person of the Trinity, still being that very much so, but took on the form of a servant. And so we see that this is when he's talking about here, he's saying that he was declared to be the Son of God in, in power, 
It is meaning that when Jesus came as a servant, he came as a human being. He came as a baby. He came as a carpenter. He came and was weak like you and me, still being God. But he was, came in weakness. And that's what threw the hearts and minds of his followers in such a turmoil and such depression when the Passion Week and Jesus died on the cross. Here is this God. This is our God. This is our Savior. Jesus, the Son of God. This is the Lord. Broken, naked, beaten, moaning, groaning, trying to not die. Yet when, when all of this stuff of nature started acting out, the earthquakes and the storms and everything, what did this, the soldier say? Oh, truly this was the Son of God. And so we see that he is the Son of God when he's on earth. But now his relationship to humanity has changed. He is no longer the servant that is weak. He is now, by virtue of the resurrection, now in power. He is now at a new status. He is now exalted to a new position, being the God-man who is Christ and Lord. And so we see that he was with God for all eternity. But then we turn to uh, uh, chapter... Two, no, let's see, uh, chapter, where's my notes here? Chapter 3, there I go. Chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 35 in the Gospel of John. We're going to go through some verses here to see that Jesus was given the power of authority, but then given the right to use that authority when he was resurrected from the dead. So we see in chapter 3 of verse 35 of John's Gospel, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. A reference to Jesus now becoming this God-man, now becoming in power that someday he will receive, already having it, but as the God-man, he will receive the, the privilege and the power to be able to have this authority. And then we see in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, and we see in verse 1, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he now showed them the full extent of his love. During supper, when the devil had already put into the hearts of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus was well aware where he was going, where he was going to the cross to die for you, but also to become what we've read in Psalm 2, saying that the nations are raging because they don't want to be ruled by anybody else but themselves. But what does God say in Psalm 2? He says, sorry, he's already been appointed and he's already been installed. So get with it. Get over it. Either kiss the sun or be destroyed by the rod of his power, of his scepter. So we see here again in, in chapter 13, in chapter 17, verse 2, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus was not only able to save, but save with full power those whom God has given to him. 
We see in, in uh, Ephesians, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. My sons taught me, I may have told you this, when my sons were loud in the villa and they had their Bible class, an easy way to kind of remember, you know, just these letters of Paul's epistles is, you know, Genesis and, and I'm sorry, Galatians and Ephesians. It's the General Electric Power Company, you know, uh, Galatians and Ephesians and uh, Philippians and Colossians. So you had the General Electric Power Company. Um, So we see in uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians, he says here, I do not cease, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you ha he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. This is what it means when John talks, when Paul tells us about he, he, Jesus was appointed. He wasn't appointed. The declaration itself was powerful. But it was when Jesus, it says, he says to us that he, he said he, he declared he was affixed to be the Son of God in power. No more in weakness, but now in full authority. Not only the Son of God, but also now the Son of God who is both the Messiah, because he had to be born a person, a man, so that he could pay the debt, so his blood could be shed, so he could be the atonement for sacrifice, so that he could be the perfect lamb. And then also, that it was Lord because only a perfect person and only God could be perfect and could die for our sins. So we see that in, in, uh, it's very, I think, important for us to understand that we all are understanding what took place when Jesus was raised from the dead. And again, let's turn back to Acts. I'm going to take you through some passages here because I want you to, I mean, I think this is important. I think it's important that Peter speaks about it and Paul speaks about it. In their, in their passages, in their sermons, in the book of Acts. That we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. What Jesus was showing him showing them the power that he was going to have. But he did have it because he was the creator, right? I mean, he stands upon, on, the, on, the, on the boat, and the storms are around him, and what does he say? Be still. And they said, what kind of manner, what manner of man is this? Who is this guy that the wind and the seas obey? And then when he casts out demons, they're going, oh my, uh, uh, another power here? We see that the demons... The unclean spirits obey him. Sends those, the, 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 the demons out of that person into the, the pigs and they jump off of the cliff into the ocean, into the sea. We see that Jesus has this. He demonstrates this power because he is telling them, this is who I am, but this is who I will become as the God-man for you. So that you can see me and you'll be able to understand who, who I am and what that means in your life. That full authority has been given to me. And so Paul, right, Peter says this. He says that God did through him in your midst this Jesus delivering up 
to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This psalmist writes this and says to us that this is his hope in his life. This is what makes him go on every day. This is his motivation. This is his joy to understand that God has this plan for humanity and has a Messiah who can pay the price fully. And then he says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then in chapter 13, we see that uh, Paul, when he speaks in Antioch, In Acts chapter 13, he says this. He says, brothers, in verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And, they, and though they found him uh, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried it out, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now the witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that was pro- God promised to his fathers, and that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. And this is where he goes and quotes Psalm 2. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It is not that he gave birth to Jesus, it is that now he fixed him and appointed him to be son of God in its fullness, both God and the God-man which means everything. And as for that fact, he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. And he spoke in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins and is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything that which you could not be freed by the law of moses all of this all of this is behind verse four so you see how quickly we read through the introduction and we, we step over a million bucks to, find, to pick up a buck. We go past this whole thing. This is why Paul is going to talk the way he talks in the next verses. This is why we see that when Jesus comes, he ushers in a new age. 
the age of the flesh is gone, though we are still dealing with it. But now, because as we see on Pentecost, it is the age of the Spirit, because when Jesus died, he sent the Holy Spirit to us. And it had to happen in power of the resurrection. And so Jesus now is not declared just a martyr, but he is now declared the Son of God. And as Paul writes, and as, as Luke tells us, in chapter 2 of, of uh, the book of Acts, he's saying this Jesus is now both Christ and Lord. He is the Messiah and the King to rule with a body, a man in heaven ruling, the God-man ruling over all of creation, ruling over everything. And it tells us in the scriptures that he was the invisible image of God. I mean, he was the image of the invisible God. He was the exact representation, the writer of Hebrew tells us. Yet he came now in power with a body that we are going to get someday, ruling in heaven. And so with him, we sit with him, getting the perspective of life that he desire us, desires us to see around us. We now hear his voice. He is now with us. This is why he says, it is better that I leave. Don't cling on to me. Don't want me to stay here because it is better by far that I leave so that I can become Christ and Lord. So that I can give you and send you the Holy Spirit. So that I can be with you when you need him. And I can be with you when you need me. I can be with you, everyone, at the same time. But when he was a man, he could only be here. And so that's why it was far better. And that's why Paul writes this to the Romans, and he says, this is big. This is where we see that, that uh, uh, we read it in Matthew's Gospel, that it says that... Uh, John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets. But yet, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because John was of that old age. He was the age of promise. We brought that up last week. Last week we talked that this is the age of promise. This is where I've talked to you about saying, you know, people of the Old Testament were looking with a telescope, waiting for the Messiah to come, being taken care of, atoned for their sins, not by the atoning sacrifice of an animal, but by who that animal represented. The Messiah. The Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. So they were looking with a telescope. Paul is now saying, this has been fulfilled. It's a new age. It's the age of the Spirit. And you'll see that contrast in the, in the New Testament, the age of flesh and the age of the Spirit. And so this is where John was the greatest and the last of them because he saw Jesus. He saw who he was, but yet he did not see Jesus die. He did not see the resurrected Christ. He did not see the fulfillment of that. That's why the least in the kingdom is greater than John, because now we can see. We can see the results. We can see the consequence. We can see the fulfillment of everything that John was hoping for. He could see, look, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's here. It's him. He ushers in, John is the forerunner, the messenger. Jesus now is the king. The king has come. Jesus says, Keep, just want you to know that the kingdom of God is near. Yeah, he's standing right next to you. The new kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, King Christ is here. That's what Psalm 2 tells us. I don't know what you're going to do, guys, but he's already fixed. He's already been appointed. He's already in place. So you're going to have to deal with it. And it's not only the kings of the Old Testament, David's time, but it's everyone. It's you and me. It's the king and the queens that look in the mirror every morning. And the people that we work for and the people that we live with and the people that we live around are all king and queens of their life. And they run their life the way they want to. And so if we come along and if we tell them about Christ, there's a raging going on inside of them. 
Who are you to tell me that I don't have a right to my own body or who I can marry or who I can love? Or what's morality? Or what's character got to do with this? A completely different world. The old has come. The old is gone. The new has come, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So this is what's going on. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our Lord. Notice he says it to all of them. He is our Lord. So not to beat this anymore, but I want you to see, this is so important because it sets the stage for the entire gospel of God. Because if we don't know that, what gospel do we have? That God wants you to be prosperous? That God wants you to be happy? That you're victorious over every sin in your life? If you don't, you got to get right? That has nothing to do. That's concerning his son. And who is his son? It is Jesus Christ our Lord. And what a huge word and phrase that is. And Paul goes on to say, because through whom, verse 5, we are moving forward now, <laughs> through whom we have received grace and apostleship. This is Paul saying, he understands grace. He was met on that road, struck down, met Christ. Why are you persecuting me? Paul was happy as a Pharisee. He wasn't unhappy with his life. He had power. He had privilege. He was a genius. He was smart as anything. Jesus pff, says, wait a minute. I'm interrupting your life. And Paul's thankful that he did. Because it wasn't that he was unhappy. It was that because he understood why he lives and why he exists. And he understands that why God created him as an image bearer of God, but now as an ambassador and the image of Christ to the world and to the Gentiles. And so he knows that he's received the grace because he knows he's a sinner. He even says, I'm the worst of sinners. He understands that he has no right to be an apostle, but he is an apostle. According to the spirit of holy, uh, I'm sorry, uh, apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, it, 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 it does happen that when we hear the gospel, that we become obedient. But what it is, is that the obedience of faith is that we need faith before we become obedient. Now, it's some translations say the, the obedience that, that comes from faith. Yeah, it's true. It, faith. We need faith. What does Paul write to us in, in uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians? He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. It is not your works. It is a gift. It's nothing you have done. God has given it to you. So we can't even claim the faith that leads to obedience. He is saying the gospel is spoken, and when faith comes into our heart, we obey the gospel. And this is what he wants to see among this Roman church. He says, I want to see and bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Now, if Jesus is not Lord, if Jesus is not the God-man, if all authority has not been given to Jesus, oh, where does that come from? It comes from chapter 28 of the book of Matthew, the great Great Commission. He says, all authority has been given to me. He's not waiting for it. He says, wait, someday I'm going to return and then I'll get it. No, he says, the kingdom of God is here right now. It's not in its fullness, but it's here. And I have full authority because I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So Jesus can send you and me out. Jesus can send Paul out with and understanding that it isn't about you, and it isn't about me. It's about him and his authority that he has over everything. If Jesus desires, he can withhold all of these molecules in this sanctuary and drop everything on top of us. 
My body can fall apart immediately, immediately if Jesus desires it to fall apart. He can stop tsunamis. He can stop all kinds of things. He can stop anything because he is the creator, but he is also the king of kings. For a man blind without eyes, Jesus has to put spit and, in mud and put his eyes and create eyes. Because he is the creator. He can do this stuff. So when he sends you and me, it ain't about us. It's about us understanding the gospel concerning his son. So how can we be missionaries? How can we be evangelists? How can we do anything if Jesus is not in authority? Nothing. We can't do anything. It doesn't make any difference to say anything or do anything because it's all by God's grace. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I have even come to Christ. And it's among all the nations. You see, it's an evangelistic work. It's a missionary work of God to understand this authority of Christ so that we send out missionaries. We send out you. God sends us out into the world to be ambassadors for him. And including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, he is telling them. He's bringing them right into it, and he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. And called to be saints. That calling, that, that calling of the shepherd that the sheep hear his voice, my sheep hear my voice, it is not just a general call, but it's the call of a shepherd to sheep that know the sound of his voice. It is that effectual call, the theologians call it. Not a, a, clear, a call that's general, but this special call, this effectual call, this call that changes my life and your life. And that's what he talks about here. Called to be saints. Called people who are to be holy. Called people who are to be separate. Set your th mind on things above. Because your life is on this earth, but this is not your home. So don't be worrying about the passions of your life. Don't be worrying about the passions of the world around you. This is where we struggle with the Spirit. And this is where we struggle with our flesh. This is where the battle is. This is where Satan attacks us. This is where he beats us up. This is where we are weary. But because Jesus says through the Scriptures, he tells us this. He goes, I began the work in you. Don't worry about it. I'll finish it. And, I, and, and, and even if you're having difficulty, I will give you the ability, I'll give you the will, and I'll give you the power to do it. We can't claim anything, folks. That's why we need to, we need to pray all the time for God's help in our life. And so he says, grace to you. Well, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is about grace. And that's what he's going to explore. Let me tell you about grace. You know grace, but let me just define it even more than you may know. Oh, the riches. Oh, the depth of, of the love of God to Christ. That's the grace that he wants people to know about. And then the peace, the shalom of God. And that's what chapters 12 to the end of verse, until chapter 16, or the end of the book is about. It's about how you and I get along. It's about how the peace that we have with God is now lived out in the community of faith. How we show each other love. How we are deacons to one another. How we show hospitality for one another. How we weep with those who weep and, and, and are happy and laugh with those who laugh. How we come alongside, how we live this out is the shalom of God. It's the prosperity, not physical prosperity, not money prosperity, but the prosperity, the blessing of living in a community of faith. That's the shalom of God. And that's what Paul writes about in chapters 12 to the end. Grace, chapters 1 through 11, shalom, the peace of God, 12 through 16. And so he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 
He doesn't give credit to anybody but God because he understands that none of these people would be, and he wants to remind them that a first importance, let's go and realize that you owe your existence to Christ himself. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Maybe a hyperbole. You know, I mean, snail mail, ship mail, horse mail back there. Long, you know, very hard, you know. I mean, didn't get there that quickly to the ends of the earth. Just that it's proclaimed all over the place. As, many, as much as gossip can go, it's to be this holy gossip that Paul writes in Thessalonians. A holy gossip is going around you people. And it's going to all over the place. That's the kind of gossip we want, right? We don't want this other gossip because we know how fast gossip goes that we don't want it to go. How fast it travels. And especially with this stuff. And then he says, for God is my witness. Wow, that's quite an oath to take, is it not? Can you say that about anything in your life? For God is my witness that I, he goes, whom I serve in and with my spirit, meaning that this word serve is a, it's a word that's used primarily in worship contests. So he is saying how I worship God in my spirit as I do do and serve people. It's a worshipful experience. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your body as living sacrifices because this is your acceptable worship. He says that I, I, God is my witness that I haven't stopped ever praying about you guys. Now, folks, I pray for you, but I cannot. I cannot make an oath to God that you're always, I'm always praying for you all the time. I pray for you a lot. But I can't say that I'm unceasingly praying for you. And to call God to be my witness, that would be pretty dangerous. But Paul can do that with confidence. But why pray? If God's in control, why? Well, the only reason we should pray is because God's in control. If I'm hoping to send a missionary, or if I'm hoping to be a missionary, if I'm hoping to be an evangelist, or if I want to see somebody come to know Christ... I better hope it doesn't depend upon me. And there was a time in my life when I, in my theology, I thought it depended upon me how I ruined it. I had an opportunity and I ruined it. What a guilt trip that is from bad theology. Not excuse for being ignorant or lazy. But folks, we can blow it all the time and God can still save Always in my prayers, verse 10, asking that somehow by God, I like this, going somehow? Scratching his somehow? How's that going to happen? No, he's going somehow by God's grace. He doesn't care how he gets to Rome, and we find out how he gets to Rome, right? He gets arrested, he ends up appealing, then he gets sent to Rome, and he becomes a prisoner. Now he's living in a house church, he's got, you know, this, he's, he's, he writes to these people wanting to make sure he knows he's coming, and he's coming, and in fact we read in Acts uh, the later part of, of, of the book of Acts, we read that these people actually greeted him when he came. I mean, he had a house guard, but he was pretty free because he was a Roman citizen. But he says, somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And I talked about last week, remember when we pray, Lord, use me any way you want to, and what that can mean, <laughs> and what that can do, and how we need to be prepared when we pray that, that God can really take you up on that. But just think, if Paul wasn't stopped from going to Rome, we would not have this letter. And just think, by Paul becoming a prisoner, he had the time to write. We would never have gotten Ephesians. We may have never gotten Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, because they're all prison epistles. He wrote them in Rome while he's in prison. So you see how God uses everything for his glory and his plan and his decrees and what this life that he has for us. It may not be a beautiful plan, but in, the, in, in God's scheme of things, God's going to use you the way that he wants you to be used. He Like with, with, with Isaiah, right? He goes, Oh, send me. Well, boy, that was a tough road to go. But send me, he goes. I want to go. 
Can we say that? Do we want to go where God wants us to go? Does he, do you feel that God wants you to talk to somebody that you're afraid to talk to? Do you pray that, you know, do you, you want to go uh, resolve something, or do you want to try to uh, build a relationship, or do you want to try ha- to, to be a, a, the salt and light in an organization or something, or in a group, or whatever? Do you pray that God put you there somehow? Because he says in verse 11, he goes, for I long to see you. And I hope, I hope, I hope this is a cry for all of us, that we long to see each other. Sometimes I get concerned about Zoom, that the longing for each other will die or be supplanted because this is easy. Not that it's convenient and it's great and it's working. I mean, COVID has screwed it all up. And this isn't the same. I mean, it's nice seeing your eyes. But this isn't the same. No handshakes, no embraces, no arms, no touching, no, you know, none of this stuff. We, you just, this, this fellowship that has become, to me, Hope Church, and when I see all of you and I'm looking and I miss I see where people sat, and I miss their faces. And it's an emptiness when you leave here. It's great to see you, and it's great, but it's an emptiness. And when you see people on Zoom, you know, when I touch you, you don't sound like this. You're not a hard screen. It's different. So I pray that, I pray that, that the, hope, the people of hope will not stop longing to want to be with one another. As Paul longs to see these people. And he longs to do that, he says, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, we don't know what that spiritual gift is, but it could be just the fact of, as he says, the gift of strengthening and encouraging. It's really, in this context, it's used as discipling. Therefore, go with all authority, because it's been all given to me. Go make disciples. And so what does that mean? That means coming alongside each other and building each other's faith up for people who are new in the faith to come alongside and making sure that they're established as Colossians, Paul tells us in Colossians, that they're rooted and established. That's what discipleship is. And that's what we, want, we should want for others. And if it's never happened to you, that's, I'm sorry. It didn't happen to me either. Some professors in college took me under their wing and I learned what it felt like to be discipled. And I want that for everyone here. To come alongside you so that you will want to come alongside someone and be strengthening them and encouraging them and present to them in some way the gift of being an encourager. Maybe that's what Paul's talking about or maybe more teaching from Paul. But what does Peter write in chapter 4 of his first letter? He says, if you speak, speak with the grace that God gives. If you do work with your hands, do it with the, the grace that God gives. Don't worry about the lists of gifts. Don't, be, don't look down there and saying, well, we've never done gifts. Well, folks, I don't like gift tests. Because I could go to Aldi's and give a gift test, and I could tell people what their gifts are, and they could give a clue about who Jesus is. But I could come up with gifts for them. Oh, you're a servant. What do you do? Oh, that's great. You got the gift of service. Oh, you call people up, you give out flowers, and you hand people, and you give people birthday cards. Oh, then you got the gift of encouragement. Gifts, that whole thing that happened early on and not so long ago in the, last, in, the night, in the late 1900s here with Peter Wagner and all this stuff was this gift search. And it's great to know the gifts, but these gifts in chapter 12 through 14 of Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians aren't all the gifts. You're not supposed to squeeze yourself in any one of those gifts because that's all you see. It's just categories of possible gifts that you could have. A gift search is not going to point that out to you. What is this place where you serve where you ask to be servants, 
We're needing deacons. We need deaconesses. We need people who want to serve. We've had people who have been serving without a break. We did that with Bob. We did that with Jeff on the, on the, on the, uh, the session as elders. God still wants us to serve, even in COVID. He wants us to serve. And we serve with the strength that God has given because he wants us to strengthen each other. That's the mutual love that a church has for each other, longing to see each other, longing to strengthen each other. Not looking for places that you can poke your finger through to find the weak spots. Which I'm not saying any of you are doing, but I've been in them. Where there's not encouragement, but there's the, the God squad that's looking for where you're not wrapped very tight and you can leak. They want to be there. Oh, you're leaking. Oh, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't be doing that. This is not what Paul's talking about. He says that we may mutually be encouraged. Notice he includes himself. And notice he says both each other's faith, both your and mine. He's a servant of God. He's an apostle. But he wants them to mutually encourage him as well. Now, doesn't that, did you notice that? I mean, really? He wants to be mutually encouraged by them because he knows that he's a sinner. He knows that he needs to be strengthened. He doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't have, he worries. He gets concerned. He's a human being. Even though he may be an apostle exemplar, he's still a human being that bleeds and cries and is weak in his flesh. And that's why he's reaching out to this congregation. And he says, I want to be, I'm not going to come as an apostle and stick my chest out and hold out my credentials and you can read my certificate on the wall when you come into my office. No, I want to be mutually encouraged by you as I mutually encourage, I mean, me, I need it by you as I encourage you, he says. And I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest some fruit, bear some fruit as you bear fruit. My, the harvest from me and the harvest from you. As well as among the rest of the Gentiles, which the Jews probably went, really, Paul? I am under obligation. He's not saying, oh, golly, i got to do this. Oh, man. And so i got to tell you, folks, sometimes in ministry, you feel like that. I'm not lying you do things that you genuinely don't want to do. And you can see your pastor nodding his head as well. And he, this is his first go-round. You just do things that you don't want to do. But yet, you know what? It's amazing how God blesses you. Anyway. I have gone to done, and spoken at places and Gone at things, and I'm just going, oh, man, this has been a tough week. This week, I'm, I'm going to be doing a video for Steve Froelich Church in, in, in Ithaca. I'm sitting here. I'm going to record it so he can have it for next Sunday. i got a busy week. It's been a busy time. But I didn't say no. Why? Because he says you're obligated. It's not that you got to do this. It's, it's like me. Paul means this. I met somebody you know, and they've given me a gift for you. Am I not obligated to give you that gift? Don't you feel obligated to hunt you down to make sure that you get that gift that God has given to you or your friend has given to you? That's the obligation. The obligation is that you've been given something. God's deposited something with you. You've been given a gift for the nations. So he feels obligated to give it to them. And that's what he says here, that I'm obligated to both to everyone, Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and foolish. So, because of God, of, he says, because of this, this sense of concerning the gospel of God in Christ, concerning his son, coming in power, knowing that he's Christ, knowing that he's Lord, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
That's why it's so important to pull that, those 15 verses together to understand why the motivation. Why Paul is, when he writes this, he, he wants to make sure that he answers questions. So what does he do? You'll see in his writing that he'll ask questions. Should we keep on sinning so grace abounds? Well, from what you just said, Paul, it sounds like that would be a logical question. Is it, is it, is it wasted that on the Jews? Has is it, is it been ridiculous and futile to be a Jew? Oh, by no means. You see, he, he, he even is so concerned about them that he wants you to learn in such a way that he even starts thinking about the questions. What a pastor he is. So, folks, these first 15 verses, I hope you've realized that the spigot's been on. Right? There's a lot of stuff here. So you can imagine when we get going, again, there are going to be times when we take the local train, and there's going to be times when they're going to take the express train. Like I mentioned last week. I pray that God gives me the sensitivity. Uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as I talked about, as I said, you know, he spent 15 years, 16 years on this, on this book and didn't finish it before he retired. He goes in prepositional phrases. Oh, what? And he always says this, and I love him for it. He goes, oh, this is the most important verse concerning the Son of God. Oh, this is the most important verse, whom I serve with my spirit. So he preaches sermons on these phrases. It's great, but it's like, wow. I'm not, I, don't, I promise I won't do that to you, but I'm going to stop where I pray that the, the Lord for us is appropriate. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do ask your your kindness to us as we have felt today by this word. And we realize, Lord, that, there, that there are, there's so much here yet to be told. And we want to realize, Lord, this is a letter, a letter to be read. And so I pray that you would impress upon uh, us here and those who are listening that this is a letter to be read in its entirety. I do not want this, Lord, to be a, a tedious task of reading this letter phrase by phrase. But sometimes, Lord, when we, we get letters from someone that we love, and we actually do break them down and wonder what they meant by that phrase. And not only wonder, but when we understand what they mean by that phrase, we kind of go back and open that email up a few times and read it again because it feels so good. It bathes us with love. It encourages us. It confirms us. It helps us to feel the love of Christ through that letter or that email or that card. So I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will guide us as we work through this letter together. As we realize that uh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is here. And we cannot hope for anything more to come. And because we have been saved by grace, that God can't love us any more than He loves us right now because of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I ask that we are encouraged by that phrase today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.